We want to continue to see and savor our Lord Jesus Christ by looking in our Bibles to John chapter 3. That's the easiest way to find it. John 3. If you're a guest with us today, I'm glad that you can participate in this time in which we focus on Christ through His Word. If you would like to follow along in God's Word, there's a copy provided for you in the seat back in front of you, and you'll find the text today on page 887. The study today will encompass John chapter 2, verse 23, to chapter 3, verse 15. It's a longer text. I think the best way for us to begin would be for me just to simply read for us 2.23 to 3.3. So allow me to read that now. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There was a gentleman here last week that I do not know personally but he did speak to me after the service. He may even be here again today. And seemed somewhat disturbed over these few verses that I just read, at least the first three. With Bible in hand, he came to me at the door and was like, hey, you didn't get to this section. Um, and I'm kind of wondering what this means. This is, this is, you know, he was indicating that this was bothersome to him and, and as he pointed to the text, I sympathized with him. And I, again, dear sir, if you're here, I, I, I do sympathize. This is a disturbing passage. But it's often hidden. It's, it's, it's like buried. People are used to Jesus cleansing the temple, and they give that attention and focus. And then they love this passage about Nicodemus, and they just kind of forget that verses 23 to 25 are also God's inspired and errant and authoritative word it's there for a reason and I actually think that the pause that that particular gentleman felt last Sunday just reading these few verses is exactly what John wants to accomplish basically Chapter 2, verse 23, opens up the possibility of someone believing in Jesus, but not being believed in by Jesus. You could say it this way. John 2, 23 opens up the possibility of someone trusting in Jesus, but Jesus not entrusting himself to them. Listen to this. This is... This is a scary thought, but this is true. It's here. It's in the text. We need to wrestle with it. John 2.23 opens up the possibility of there being what I will call a bogus as opposed to bona fide belief. That's a scary category. I mean, I'm looking at it's beautiful people here today. And the reality is that, that all of us in this room will fall into one 
of three categories when it comes to this particular text. The first and most obvious category would be the person who genuinely believes, what I'm calling bona fide belief. This is true that Jesus did entrust himself to some people, but it was just that particular people that, he, that trusted in him that he did not entrust himself to. So there, there are some among you here today, you're real, you're, you're, you're a true believer, to use the popular phrase. Category one. Uh, category two is very obvious. It's the unbeliever. There are some who are here today that are like, no, I have not yet trusted myself to Christ. I have not yet exercised saving uh, belief in Him, uh, nor do I really care to, but I'm here today. I'm interested. I'm listening. Uh, but we know that category very well, and we tend to think that there's only two categories. There's the believing and the unbelieving. But the passage points to a third. Believer, unbeliever, and then bogus believer. (laughs) Something that's fake. You don't use that word very often, but you get it. Just look it up. Not real, counterfeit, bogus. It's, it's It's not effective. It's not the genuine article. And that's disturbing. So, when you, when you think about that, because some of you actually believe in Jesus, and then probably most, uh, I would say 90% of you at least, claim to believe in Jesus. Well, even within that group, there may be some who don't actually do so. So, since that category exists, and it is effectively disturbing, we would do well then to read carefully how John will address this particular category of bogus believer. Basically, what you see happening in the book of John is this huge emphasis on Jesus being the Son of God and His whole end game. John chapter 20, verse 31, is that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This is from the very beginning. It is what he's trying to do. And you know what you've seen up to this point? You've seen people believing in Jesus. Uh, When you got to the end of chapter 1, there was record after record of disciple believing the testimony of John the Baptist, believing in Jesus, seemingly in a saving way. And then you get to chapter 2, and there's that amazing miracle in Cana. You remember that? He turns the water into wine. He continues the feasting and the celebration. He does so kind of behind the scenes, but his disciples see it. And do you remember the conclusion of the story? It says, and his disciples believed in him. And then you get to the end of uh, the the middle section of John chapter 2, where Jesus cleanses the temple, and he makes this huge pronouncement that he's going to replace the temple establishment. And the text concludes this way. When he rose again from the dead, the disciples remembered what he had said and believed. Verse 22. So John is concerned about genuine belief, and you're like, you're like humming along, and you're just thinking like, all right, great, I get it. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And then all of a sudden, you hit this like speed bump in the text. It's just like, whoa, 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 slow down. Before you think that belief is just, I don't know, intellectual assent in who Jesus is, or at least some type of Uh, concession to the fact that he is a powerful individual or human being, Uh, John is going to provide for us a particular story from the life of Jesus that will give us a clearer picture of bona fide belief, real belief, genuine belief. And specifically, he's going to give us two marks of bona fide belief. You'll see it play out through the conversation with Nicodemus. That's what we're listening out for. The first mark of bona fide faith that is actually seen here from this conversation with Nicodemus is its origin. Its origin. That's in verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 15, we'll note the second mark, which is its object. So we'll note the origin of bona fide belief and the object of this belief. So it's origin, verses 1 through 8. Clearly, if you've ever read this passage before, 
you know where it comes from. Real belief, genuine belief, comes from above. It comes from above. Uh, let's just read the text. There's kind of a debate going on here. Well, we'll read it in a second, but I want you to note that there is a debate going on. It's kind of hard for you to see unless you read the entire passage several times, but when like, I use the word debate, it really is a debate. It's like a showdown between uh, two great university professors, if you will. Uh, Jesus is representing uh, himself and the prophets. He'll use, sometimes as he's speaking to Nicodemus, we, we know, we know this. But the reason why Jesus speaks on behalf of the prophets and himself is because Nicodemus comes to him and says, I and we think that you are this or that. So Nicodemus is representing a group, and verse 1 tells us who that group is. It says that he's a ruler of the Jews. You can see that there in your text. And he is also a man of the Pharisees. So um, if you're thinking popular Judaism, one of the denominations, one of the major denominations was uh, Phariseeism. Uh, it was kind of the, the popular one. Uh, I would say Phariseeism uh, is in some ways, in popularity, not in belief, but in popularity like Baptists in the South. It's just, that's the majority rule. The, the, the majority of the people of that time who were in Judaism would have been identified with the Pharisees, but the ruling party, technically the people in the Senate, if you will, you know, that had the majority were called the Sadducees. But they all kind of ruled together. So this guy is a, a ruling authority. He is representing his particular uh, brand of Judaism to Jesus. And the only thing that you really need to know about this whole Pharisee thing is that uh, these guys were really big fans of the end times, eschatology. A lot of times people, I think, mistakenly peg the Pharisees as, as just legalists, and they were. But they weren't into following rules for following rules' sake. They were consumed with the end times, the, the, the kingdom of God. They wanted to see it come in. And they legitimately believed, or excuse me, illegitimately believed that if people would just purify themselves enough, God would come. You could call them the purity party. That's what they wanted. So anyone reading this who would have been aware of Phariseeism in the first century would have known that the essence of what Nicodemus is representing here is this obsession with purity and ritual, and they just weren't about doing it themselves. They were trying to spread this and make a movement throughout all of Judaism. And so the guy, he comes to Jesus, and there's kind of this debate, because he represents the Pharisee party. Jesus is representing some new kind of teaching. And keep in mind, in light of what we've seen in John so far, Jesus is being well-respected as a teacher. I mean, he is doing signs. He has validated himself in ways that normal teachers cannot do. I mean, we saw that back last week in the temple where they could have called the police on him and carried him off as insane, but he had already done enough works recorded for us in the other synoptics, in the other gospels, excuse me, and those works had somehow given him some, some credibility to be heard. So even Nicodemus says that here. He says, hey, we know you're a teacher come from God because of the signs that you do. And what's interesting is that Jesus is actually interacting with, listen to this, a subset of the category of bogus believers. He is dealing here with Nicodemus with a subset of the category of bogus believers. Now, I want you to notice this textually, and then don't worry, we'll get into more practical stuff, but look at your Bibles first. In 2.23 to 25, Jesus establishes this category of bogus believers, if you will. There's some people, he knows their hearts, he knows what they really believe, he knows what's on the inside, he doesn't need anybody to testify. But there's two things that are in, interesting in 2.23 to 25. One is, the only thing that differentiated the real belief from these people's belief, because they both believe in the name of the Son of Jesus, I mean, in Jesus, excuse me, believe in his name, is they emphasize the signs. They emphasize the signs. Notice that in verse 23. He says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Uh, now look at chapter 3, verse 2. What does Nicodemus say to Jesus in his opening introduction of this debate? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He says, we know it. We believe that you do signs. 
See the parallels? Here's the second one. There's this use of uh, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what was in man. And how is Nicodemus introduced? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. This man came to Jesus by night. So my point is, uh, we've got the broad category of spurious believers, if you will, and now you're going to narrow in on his interaction with one. The debate begins very politely. In round one, Nicodemus, in true oriental fashion, beats around the bush. Uh, Some of us come from different cultures. Americans can be all over the board, but like the general stereotype is that, uh, internationally speaking at least, uh, Dutch people were very direct. If you ever met somebody, you would know it. They just tell you exactly what they're thinking when they're thinking it. People from more collectivist cultures, uh, hospitable cultures, uh, they're definitely way more deferential. They, they're very slow to get to the point. I mean, think of actually like um, the, the Chinese, uh, th- very don't want to disrespect, don't want to cause any dishonor. America, to me, is kind of a subset of that. You've got... Um, You've got people from New York. <laughs> Love you guys. <laughs> and then you've got everybody else. <laughs> some people, I say that as a joke, but some people get into the direct, all right, let's talk, let's talk about it. What's the problem? What's the issue? And then there's another group of people that are just like, hey, just, well, you're, you know, your, your dress looks really nice today. You know, man, what'd you do this weekend? How's that weather? And then, you know, 20 minutes later, they're going to get to the point. Well, Nicodemus, he's an Oriental. He goes to Jesus at night. Don't really know why. In light of actually what happened in chapter 2, I kind of get why he would go to him at night. But he's got real questions. He goes and he says, hey, rabbi, he calls him rabbi. He says, my teacher. Rabbi literally means my master, but it's acknowledging him as a, as a teacher. He says, we know that you've come from God. We know that you're, um, that, that you're doing these signs, and that's all he says. He just compliments him, and do you ever, have you ever noticed this, how Jesus responds? He doesn't say, hey, thanks for that. Well, you look mighty fine today yourself. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't do the normal pleasantries. Notice how Jesus here in this text knows the heart of all men. He just gets to the point. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He didn't ask about the kingdom of God with his mouth. But at the end of the day, Jesus knew what was in his heart because as a Pharisee, he's consumed with the kingdom of God. He knows where this conversation is going to go. And if you want to know what Nicodemus and Jesus mean by the kingdom of God, basically what they're talking about is God's end time rule and reign where he rights all the wrongs. He makes all the sad things come untrue. It's what a lot of believers mistakenly call heaven. We think of heaven as this, this place up in the sky that is a place of escape. The Jews actually had a better notion of the end than we do because what God had promised from the very beginning was actually a renewed heavens and earth. Basically, he was going to come and like renovate entirely this planet and he was going to make it right again. And when they talk about the kingdom of God, they're talking about a renovated heaven and earth. They're talking about a renovated universe. And so this is what Nicodemus wants in his heart. And so Jesus gets straight sorry, to the point. He says, okay, you want to know about the kingdom of God? Here's the deal. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So notice round one of the debate. Jesus establishes like the issue. He establishes the issue. He cuts to the chase. He gets right to the heart of the matter, and he says, all right, here's the deal. You want to get into the kingdom of God. I know this is what you're really wondering about. You want to know how to enjoy the blessings of God's end time rule and reign. Here it is. You need to be born again. And that term born again is kind of confusing for those who would have been reading this in Greek. Because the Greek word anothen could mean born from above or born again. 
It can mean either. It, it, you know, like if you were to look up the dictionary definition, it would have a number one and a number two. <laughs> so it's not really clear to Nicodemus what he means by this, but there is some sense, though, in which whatever it is, whether it's born from above or born again, it's pretty radical. Like it's going to be a big deal. So now begins then round two of the debate. Remember, the point is Jesus is trying to clarify the origin of bona fide belief. He's established the issue. The issue is about entering into the kingdom of God. Who's going to really believe unto salvation? This is maybe a way we would say it. And so, round one, issues established. Round two, Nicodemus counters. He gets in, uh, works in his part of the debate here. And look at verses four through eight. Notice the counter. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? These are logical objections. This makes total sense. If Nicodemus is interpreting Jesus literally, it makes sense that he would then object, well, you can't be born when you've already been born. You can't crawl into your mother's womb, as graphic of a picture as that would be. I mean, basically what Nicodemus is trying to do is point out that Jesus is being absurd. He's trying to say, okay, whatever it is you think you know about entering the kingdom, you obviously don't know because this doesn't make any sense. Let's give Nicodemus the benefit of the doubt for a second. Let's assume that he's not an idiot and that he actually could read between the lines and that he knows that Jesus is giving a metaphor. Even if that's the case, Nicodemus responds in kind with a metaphor of his own to say, hey, even if you could figuratively, spiritually somehow be totally born again, how would anybody ever do that? It's absolutely impossible. You've got to understand something. Think political parties for a second and apply it to religious thought. His entire party platform was self-initiated purity. Like the whole thing hinged upon people's ability to clean themselves up and to clean up other people around them. He doesn't like the idea of new birth because that implies that you can't do anything about it. You hear, we're, we're about to hear it. We're almost in May. You're going to hear high school graduation speeches and all these testimonies from kids who are going to say, without my mom and dad, I wouldn't be here. No duh. You know, that's the whole point of Jesus' command. You must be born again. You can't do this. This is something that has to happen outside of you. Like, I made my head hurt this week trying to think about, like, what, how would a man ever be born? You know, you just, it's, it's logically impossible. And so Nicodemus says, all right, um, look, life doesn't work that way, Jesus. So Nicodemus counters Jesus with his own logic. He just uses logic. But notice how Jesus answers Nicodemus back. So round two, Nicodemus throws a counterpunch. And then round two, Jesus parries. But instead of just using logic, I want you to also note that Jesus introduces Scripture into the debate. So Nicodemus is just objecting on the ground of logic. Jesus actually includes Scripture into his debate, and then he's going to add logic on top of it. It's great debate strategy. Verse 5 Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you. Notice how he keeps saying truly, truly. Jesus is setting himself up as an authority. Friends, I know we don't like, use that word very often, but amen and amen. That's what they're saying. This was the thing that would be said at the end of the synagogue teaching, and all the elders sitting around the outside, if they agreed with that teaching, would have actually said amen. That means that I agree, this is true. But people didn't say that of themselves. It just like never happened. And here Jesus says it twice. He says, hey, just ahead of the fact, I'm going to go ahead and let you know, I already won the debate. Truly, truly. <laughs> this is fact. I say to you, and how is it that he can speak so authoritatively? Listen to this. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, he already said you need to be born from above or born again. Remember, it's an ambiguous word. Here he's going to use a different phrase to describe the same thing. You need to be born of the water and the Spirit. 
Now, friends, to get past all the confusion and to save ourselves about 15 minutes of unnecessary debate this morning, let's get to the point. How would Nicodemus have understood born of water and the Spirit? We think, oh, that must mean something like baptism and the Holy Spirit. That is not what Nicodemus would have been thinking. This man is an Old Testament scholar. He knows his Bible. And in light of this literary illusion, Nicodemus' mind would have went back to the text that we read this morning in the gathering. Ezekiel 36 verses 25 to 27. Listen again carefully to just the center of what we read. We read so many verses, you may have missed it. But the reason why I asked Greg to read all the verses today is because in this particular chapter in Ezekiel, he's acknowledging that the people of God have blown it. They have messed it up. They have not been able to secure for themselves the blessing of God, the end-time blessing of God. They have failed miserably. And in light of that, God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix the problem. The problem is you guys are so impure and you can't obey my laws, therefore you're cursed. So I'm just going to fix the problem by fixing your heart. And when I fix your heart, you're going to be able to obey, and then you're going to be able to enter into all the covenant blessings that I promised back in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. But here's the heart of what he promises in verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from your idols I will cleanse you. You hear the water? Remember, water and the Spirit, right? So there's the water. Water's a natural analogy for a thorough cleansing. God's going to sprinkle this water on them. He's going to purge them. He's going to purify them. Look at verse 26. It gets better. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see what's happening? Like, God is saying, hey, you can't fix yourself. I will fix you from the outside in, from above. Or, again, it's so thorough. That's why I like the Greek word, anathen. It's the same word that's used when it says that uh, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. Do you remember, like when you think of that, when you think of somebody being, uh, like something happening from top to bottom, what do you think of? You think not only of direction, but you think of thoroughness. We clean the house from top to bottom. I mean, again, it's, it's thorough. So there's, again, there's from above, whatever the notion is, it's clear here from Ezekiel 36 that he's talking about a thorough renovation that ultimately comes from the outside, from the realm of God. He will finally clean people up to such a degree that they will be able to enjoy blessing. So Jesus drops the scripture bomb on the debate. Nicodemus should have known this. Of course you can be thoroughly renovated. God said that he would thoroughly renovate you. But listen to this. Now Jesus, with what I think is a brilliant twist of wit, adds his own logic to the debate. Nicodemus gave him an analogy. It's like, okay, this is ridiculous. Who can climb into their mother's womb again? Who can be born again when they're old? And Jesus said, okay, you seem to have a problem believing that God from above can do something here on earth without you seeing or understanding it. Let me give you an example of God doing something from above that's invisible that you yourself can't understand, but that you can actually perceive, and he just reminds them of the wind. Notice it. He says, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, um, time out. Greek word check here. Don't like to do this often, but I'll do it again. Spirit's easy. Easy Greek. Pneuma. Pneuma. Pneumatology. Uh, if you're, you're a little baby, has a pneumothorax. <laughs> a pneuma. Uh, breath. Wind. Spirit. All the same word in Greek. Now listen to this. With that in mind, that which is born of the pneuma is pneuma. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And here's his analogy. The pneuma, wind, 
blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma. Now, yesterday was a fun day here in southwest Florida. It was breezy. I don't know if you noticed it, but it was another beautiful day. But around 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon, I don't know why, I don't know how. I'm not a weatherman. But wind took over the area. Now, if you were in that, and you can just think back that far, you probably didn't know what was going on either. You don't know exactly why it was blowing, why it was blowing from the particular direction that it was, but you just accept the fact that the wind was blowing, even though you couldn't see it. You could at least hear it. Maybe it shifted your car on the roadway. Maybe it took your clean driveway and filled it with pine needles. Like it did mine. (laughs) But it's an invisible force, a sovereign entity of some kind. Like you don't control it. I don't know anybody that controls it. But we see its effects all around us. We can perceive it. What's he saying to Nicodemus? Hey, I know you think that this is something that's way out of your control, and I know that's a problem for you. In light of your purity platform, you're assuming that people would be able to clean themselves up enough. But look, here's the deal. This is the way that God works. He works in ways that you can't predict, in ways that you can't control, but in ways that you can truly perceive. This is logical, friend. It is biblical. It is logical. And the whole point of this shooting match of round one and round two of this debate, is that, listen to this, in light of the context that he's established here, is that this genuine belief in Jesus is something that cannot be humanly manufactured. It is something that must come from above. Its origin is not in the intellect. It is not in the inner psyche. It is nothing within us. It is something outside of us. In fact, it is not even around us. It's not something that we pick up on from hanging out with the right people. It isn't something that can be mass-engineered in the right psychological environment, like a church with a well-run program. It is something that is actually above, not within, not around, but above. It is something that God must do in the heart. And so, he is saying that to truly enjoy the saving benefits of Jesus, the reign of God, God has to do a work in you. This is something that is totally outside the realm for you. And friends, this is good news. This is fantastic news. Because whether it be in our presentation of the gospel to others, or whether it be in our own enjoyment of the gospel for ourselves, uh, this very truth kills all human striving. Not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Um, that's true, friends. I, I know that you think, especially if you're new and walking with Christ, I can't do this. I don't know that I can live this way. I don't, I don't know that I can live out the implications of my belief in Christ. Listen to me well. You didn't start it, and you don't finish it. God is at work. I love that passage in Philippians 2 where it says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. You're struggling, you feel like you're getting your rear end kicked by sin, God, who started the belief, will enable the belief that will give you the power to ultimately obey. This is not only good news for you individually, but it's good news for our church, and I think we should just remember this in days ahead, but friends, we don't have to do anything to produce faith in others. We can't can't trick people into it. We can't persuade them. If your gospel presentation, let me say it this way. If your gospel presentation somehow comes across um, like a dude selling insurance, you've got a problem. Like if it sounds like I've got to close the deal today, 
I've got to make this happen. I've got to bounce the ball three times, and if they don't respond, I'm going to move on and wait till another day. Like, if you're thinking, like, oh, I blew it that time. I, I shared Jesus, but I should have said such and such, or I, I should have really done such and such, or, man, I wish that the pastor would have preached on this particular thing that day, or that particular thing, or, man, why did they do that particular song? It ruined the mood, because, uh, I mean, like, if we really wanted people to respond afterward, we really would have just, like, made it better for them to, to like, make an easier decision. Listen, all that kind of terminology it's like betrays the belief produced from above in this verse. This is something that God does. And therefore, practically, what that means for us as a church, not just as you as an individual, but as a church, we're just going to keep relying on God's means to produce faith. We're going to keep praying for new birth and real belief. We're going to keep preaching Jesus for that, his death, burial, and resurrection for sinners. And we're going to keep practicing those signs that keep pointing people to believe in Jesus I mean, like, it's a really basic thing. We can't architect belief in individuals. There's a whole history of how that started in the United States, and I don't even want to get into it today, but the truth is it is a movement. It is machinery, friends, and it is absolutely not only unnecessary, but dangerous to real and authentic belief. So the point is that we need to understand from the very beginning that bona fide belief is originates from above. That's the first mark. Here's the second. Notice object, the object of bona fide belief. It is focused on the crucified Lord. This is the point. This is the most important part. The object of bona fide faith is focused on the crucified Lord. Now, round three continues here in the debate. Nicodemus uh, said in verse 9 to Jesus, how can these things be? It's kind of interesting. It starts off, uh, Nicodemus says a bunch of words, and Jesus only says a few. And then by the second round, uh, Nicodemus says uh, less words, and Jesus says a little more. By the time you get here to the final round, Nicodemus only says a few words, and Jesus just takes up the rest of it. Like he is dominating the debate, if you will, by the third round. And the only thing that Nicodemus can say by this point is like, okay, I don't get it. How in the world am I ever going to believe? Nicodemus is asking the same question, friends. Hear me well. He's asking the same question that some of you are asking right now. You're like, oh, great, Justin. Thank you for telling me that it's from above and that I can't control it. But here's the thing that we really want to know. Well, then what do I do? If I can't do it, if it has to happen from above, you naturally want to know, well, is there anything that I can do? I know I can't purify myself. You're thinking this about the people that you love. You're thinking this about your unconverted children. Okay, great, Justin. Appreciate it. Thanks for telling me that if I want to see my son saved, if I want to see my daughter come to Christ, that God's going to have to do it from above. Appreciate that, Captain Obvious. But what am I going to do in the meantime? Well, I've only given you the first mark. The second mark is that this faith, real, bona fide, genuine faith, has an object. And what we need to do then is point people to the right object. And that object, according to Jesus, is the crucified Lord. Now, there is an interesting part of this debate where Jesus just basically, in my opinion, uh, kind of like rubs Nicodemus' face in uh, Jesus' own authority. He humbles him thoroughly. Because uh, in response to Jesus' question, how can these things be? Notice verse 10, Jesus answered him. He like shames him. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? That the is in the original text. Are you the best teacher in Israel, the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? You don't understand Ezekiel 36? You don't understand the promise of a new covenant relationship? You don't get the fact that this ultimate salvation would have to come from God? Verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, again, basically, I've already won the debate, but this is what I'm going to say to you. We, notice this, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus uses the royal we, and I think he's including in this prophets like John the Baptist, prophets like Ezekiel. He says, look, we speak what we know. Here's what, here's what me and the Bible understand, as opposed to you and your group. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Notice, what does he want from him? Belief. And what must Nicodemus first do? Understand that Jesus is the one who knows how to get into the kingdom of God. He says, 
I can't tell you more about the kingdom of God because you haven't believed the most basic thing, the most earthly thing. And that is that it must happen from God and not from you. Jesus is establishing his authority, saying, look, I've already won this debate. I can't tell you anything else. And look, the only one who can speak to you basically about how to get into heaven and enjoy the future reign of God is the person who came from God himself, is the person who came from heaven. And that's why he says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, look, I'm the authority on this debate. I am the one that has come from heaven. Now, admittedly, admittedly, he doesn't say, I have come from heaven. He speaks in the third person, and he references this rather enigmatic title, the Son of Man. Uh, Gentile mindset, we don't get it. We don't know our, Bible, our Old Testaments especially that much. We don't read prophetic literature that often. It's sad, it's unfortunate, but somebody who grew up reading uh, the Old Testament as their Bible and their Bible alone would have known what the Son of Man was. The Son of Man was this figure in Daniel chapter 7 who was basically promised to descend from heaven and fix everything. (laughs) They didn't know if that was going to be the same as the Messiah or something different, and yet they knew that this was this end-time eschatological figure. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm telling you things about heaven. The only person who can know things from heaven is the Son of Man who descended from heaven. Hint being, I'm the Son of Man. (laughs) Now that he's established his authority, notice him as he explains his point. This is it. You ready? All right, what do we do? How do you get in? Jesus finally answers his question in verse 14. It's an analogy, but it's easy to follow. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do you see the comparison? Notice the object. The object that's here is an Old Testament analogy. It's specifically that story from Numbers, I think it's 21. Um, Yeah, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, in which um, a couple things happen. One, the children of Israel sin against God by complaining against Him. Surprise, surprise. God curses them on account of their sin. He's the righteous judge, and He had every right to do so. And, And the way that He curses them is rather heinous. He infests their camp with snakes. I mean, just imagine that scene from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark being the reality in your camping ground. I mean, Jesus, I mean, excuse me, God the Father is hot in wrath against them for their sin, and so he sends these snakes. And they're biting them, and people are dying left and right. And so they they come and they say, we don't want to suffer the consequences of God's wrath anymore. Moses, please do something. Tell God that we're sorry. And so Moses intercedes on their behalf. God says, okay, here's the solution. Moses, I want you to take and craft a serpent out of bronze or copper and put it on a pole, put it in the middle of the camp. And the very thing that is the object of their destruction, the very thing that they deserve on account of their sin, they're going to have to look at that. And when they look at that in faith, they'll be delivered. They'll be saved. They'll be rescued. Now, that's Numbers 21. I hope if you've never heard that story, you should. I'm so glad, by the way, time out for the parents in the room. You should be very happy that they go back to generations of grace because we teach them all the Bible. (laughs) And I specifically remember teaching on my own generations of grace a few years ago and doing a coloring sheet with the children of that very scene. (laughs) I mean, it shows all the pictures. Aiken and his family getting swallowed up in a hole. Your kids are going to color a picture on that. (laughs) The the serpents biting. They're going to get a picture of that. But why? You say, man, you guys are hardcore. What's the deal? Because the Bible's assuming that we know this. When you have a clear picture of what went on that day and like how that salvation was brought about, you then will begin to understand how salvation comes about in Jesus, how you enjoy the kingdom of God. And so he says, here's the analogy. As the Son of Man, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now this gets to the point, friends. We all, let's get to us, 21st century, today, we all have rebelled against God, and we have been cursed on account of our sin. That penalty is death. We deserve, 
in God's righteous wrath to die before Him, and yet He has provided a way of salvation. By sending His own Son into the sphere of humanity, He would actually arrange it so that His Son would become the very object of His wrath. Like, and so that people would have to look on and see the very penalty for their sin and thereby experience salvation. Jesus would hang on the cross. He would suffer the full weight of God's wrath. He would absorb every drop of it in His own person. And anyone who will ever be saved must have that kind of Lord as the object of their faith. And we know that He is the Lord... Not just some man, but the Lord, the Son of Man, the one who will ascend because He actually conquered the grave when He died. He rose again showing that He really was God's chosen one. He really was the one from above. And listen to this. There is zero true bona fide belief apart from beholding the crucified Lord as the object of one's faith and ultimate salvation. So Justin, I don't get it. I don't see why this is different than what those people were doing in chapter 2. It's way different. In chapter 2, they were believing in the name of Jesus when they saw His signs. Friends, it doesn't take a supernatural work of God for a miracle to happen. A guy can't see and then he can see. If a guy can't walk and then he can walk. That doesn't take a miracle. I mean, that doesn't take, excuse me, some kind of supernatural belief. If that happens, especially in the first century, and there's no medicine, I mean, like, it's clear it happens. So they believe that Jesus is a great miracle worker. But it will become clear, because Jesus knows their heart, that they will not ultimately believe in him as the crucified Lord. That is offensive to them. You know what this first remedies, friends? It remedies what I will call, and how appropriate that it is today of all days, thank you, God, the Palm Sunday problem. The Palm Sunday problem. You know what the Palm Sunday problem is? It's the tendency that everybody has, especially in the United States, to celebrate Jesus as the political king and hero that they want him to be, but not really care all that much about him being dead, buried, and risen again on account of their sin. Like we've made Jesus like the the, the, the genie in Aladdin's lamp. Like, it's just whatever we want him to be. If we want Jesus to be a political leader, great. If we want Jesus to be Santa Claus and give us everything that we ultimately hope for, great. If we want Jesus to heal us of all our diseases, great. But a Jesus who is actually coming to satisfy God's wrath for our very sin by dying on a cross and then rising again, that is a supernatural thing to believe. That requires something from above. And its object is way different than just the Jesus who makes you more jolly or the Jesus who makes you more rich. Do you see how the object is different? Friends, this is huge. This is, this is at the center of our faith. Because listen, I'm not the only one preaching Jesus here. You also are holding out Jesus to other people, and the question has to be asked, who are you holding out? You know, if I, the best way that I could show you, just try to modernize this for a second, the best way I could show you the problem I think would be to point to um, something that we see on a regular basis here in Southwest Florida. You ever been driving down the road and uh, you, you, you pull up to a stoplight? I just had this experience on the corner of Logan and Immokalee a couple months ago. And there's this dude out there and he's got a sign. And he is like jamming to the sign. He's shaking it. And then when it's not windy, like he's like throwing the thing up in the air and it's twirling all around and he like catches it behind his... You ever seen that guy? (laughs) Now some of you have seen the other guy. The other guy is the one, it's like a teenager, it's like 16, and they're like just kind of holding the sign up for shade and like surfing the net on their cell phone. Okay, that's not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about the guy that's giving it everything he's got. Like sometimes I just like, I don't care what's on the sign, I just want to give the guy a tip. I'm like, I'll hire you to come work for me, you know. (laughs) Like, he's just giving it everything. But the weird thing about those signs is I can never remember what's on the sign. All I can remember is the dude flipping the sign. In a similar way, Jesus' miracles were indeed a sign. 
They were a sign that were pointing people to another destination. They were a sign that were pointing them to Him as the crucified Lord. And and you know what those people were doing in John chapter 2? They were watching Jesus flip the sign, but they weren't willing to follow Him to the location to which the sign pointed. Friends, what we have a problem with, an epidemic in our own day, are people who love the sign-flipping Jesus. They think He's cool. They think He's trendy. They think that He's just kind of fun to watch because there's certain things that they just like. They're they're kind of entertained by a Jesus that makes them feel better, a Jesus that could uh, pad their bank accounts, a, a Jesus that could satisfy their loneliness. But on the sign, it reads, Crucified risen and reigning Lord. The person who truly looks in faith to Jesus has first recognized that they are a sinner who rightfully has earned God's wrath upon them, right? And then they're looking to Him for deliverance from that. And the only way that they can experience this saving rule of God is through faith, through repentance, through trust in in Him as that. Here's the question. You want to get to the nature of the object of bona fide belief? Somebody says, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. All right, now let's follow that up with two more questions. Believe in Jesus as what? Believe in Jesus for what? If you meet somebody, or even if you're here today and you say, I believe in Jesus, I have a question for you. You believe in Jesus as what? Or for what? If you don't believe in Jesus as the crucified Lord... It's a bogus belief. Believe in Jesus for what? If you don't believe in Jesus to save you from your sin, your rebellion against God, it is a bogus belief. And that only comes from above. May God grant us bona fide belief. It originates from above. Its object is focused on the crucified Lord. Notice how Jesus closes the discussion that when you believe in the Son of Man in this way, that He's lifted up on the cross, whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Believe it or not, the conversation has become full circle. Eternal life and seeing and enjoying the kingdom of God are the same thing. Eternal life means life that is characterized by the eschaton, by the end, by the eternal age. Now, we're going to learn more next week about the opposite of eternal life, perishing and what that is. And we can learn more about what eternal life is. But whatever you think of as the ultimate benefit of God's deliverance and rule and salvation, that's eternal life. Eternal life with God as opposed to eternal death, separation from Him in hell. But he's saying, when you believe, you will enjoy this eternal life. So, for the subcategory of individuals... And here today, who are not believing, I call on you. Believe. Trust in this Lord. May God enable you to look to Jesus in faith as the crucified Lord, the Savior from your sin. But to that second category of believers, for those of you who may be in that... um, Believing category, the the bonafide category, it's real. Praise God, you can rest in Christ. Keep looking to Him. But for those who have just tried to believe in a Jesus that suits your own whims and fancies, look to the crucified Lord. I want to finish by sharing a testimony. Not my own comes from my uh, favorite figure in church history from the 19th century, the 1800s, a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Many of you know him to be the most popular preacher of that particular time, but you probably have never heard his story. It's only a couple minutes long, but it's so clear on bona fide belief that I thought it'd be worth sharing here. And then we'll close in prayer. Essentially, uh, Spurgeon tells the story of his own conversion in his autobiography. And um, 
And in it, it was January 6th, 1850. He knew the exact day. Not all of us do, but he did. It was freezing cold. It's London. It's dark. He's 16 years old. And this is what he says. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text, and the preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting up your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college and learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. And when he had gone about at that length and managed to spend out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, and just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. (laughs) However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text, but if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, 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 you have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I have been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen at that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Friends, I can't fully explain the new birth to you. I know that it's from above. But I can't explain what it looks like. It's really simple. It's looking to the crucified Lord for your hope and salvation. Have you looked to Him? Would you look to Him? Would you keep looking to Him? All we have, all we need is Christ crucified risen, reigning, and returning again. If you 
truly believe in Christ, we want to confess that again in a few moments. Confess our belief. We have all we need in Christ. We're looking to Him. But you may be here today and you have not yet confessed Christ. You have not yet looked to Him in faith. Maybe the same song we sing as an ongoing confession would be the song of your initial confession. I'm going to look to Christ and be saved. Can I pray? Father, we've seen here that we can't produce faith. This is Yours. So bring about new life today in those who may be dead in their sin. And for those who are alive in Christ, beholding Him as the crucified Lord on account of their sin, I'll give them joy and confidence again that they indeed have Christ and all His benefits. May that sustain us, comfort us, propel us into greater expressions of purity and obedience and witness this week. In Jesus' name, amen.